what I see is that sure, a long time ago, the tech was born from an appreciation of, of uh, having a not corrupt monetary system. However, it's become sensationalized, even with Robinhood and Coinbase and look at CNBC and Fox News tickers. Check out Grayscale, everybody. You can invest and buy a DeFi fund here. You know, it, it's fun to talk about the, the overall growth and acceptance, but for many people, it's just become a new hot Tesla stock. They don't even care to know the differences between what is Chainlink and, and what is uh uh, the new bat token and what's their utility or what's their purpose. It's, it's more um, just about, Ooh, is the price up or down? How's my portfolio doing? And for many people in that mindset, they, they, they don't see they're, they're saying, well, everything's regulated. If you can make money, it needs to be regulated. And I need to look to the people who tell me what to do, the regulators. And I need to wait for the, the message to come down. Welcome to specific knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my friends Lucas and Ryan, who are experts in their field. Today's topic will be on social reciprocity and crypto regulations. Without further ado, episode four of Specific Knowledge. All right, Lucas, Ryan, episode four, Reciprocity to Regulations. How are you doing? Doing good, Devin. How are you? <laughs> doing really well. Lucas, how are you? I'm doing well, brother. It's always fun to hang out with you guys <laughs> and talk Austrian economics. So yeah, that's actually what we're going to be talking about first. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Austrian economics, which is uh, where the namesake of this podcast, Specific Knowledge, comes from. Um, then we'll move into a, a phenomenal book by David T. Beto uh, about the mutual aid and welfare state, and then kind of into regulation, which is, you know, you, you go from reciprocity of, of a state like that, um, and regulations get us to, I think, where we're at now. Um, and you know, kind of the overarching theme is, well, how does blockchain fit into this? How is blockchain a social currency? Um, how does blockchain uh, fight against regulation? And and uh, what does that fight look like? And I think we have a lot of good content on that today. So I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, but you guys are both, um, to me, uh, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many uh, experts on Austrian economics. And I would like you instead of me, because I would do it no justice, um, I would like you two to describe, you know, what Austrian economics is, and maybe uh, you know, kind of wrap it up in how it relates to blockchain, and and also tie in why it is the namesake of this podcast. Well, well you want to start, Luke? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll start something quick, but I, you know, I love listening to you talk about it just as much, Ryan. We um we did study economics and, and get a formal degree, but we also spent uh, an equal amount of time, actually more time studying Austrian economics simultaneously and postgraduate. So uh, we don't consider ourselves experts of Austrian economics, but we, we do love reading the experts in Austrian economics and, and, and studying that philosophy. I, for me, what really attracted uh, me to it was looking for a, a, a rational and, and more complete um, definition or a model and understanding of how 
markets really work. And, and so I, for me, in Austrian economics in particular, there was this, um, you're, you're, you're kind of brought to this place where you realize that human um, social calculation becomes impossible uh, when you when you recognize that humans have different subjective values uh, preferences and um, they're changing all the time and understanding uh, the limits of knowledge and are are changing uh, amounts and knowledge um, certain things become futile but however knowing that doesn't mean that economic calculation is impossible in fact there's this elegant um, um, understanding that out of um, spontaneous calculation, out of out of not trying to r regulate and control from a top-down approach, you can, similar to blockchain, uh, this decentralized technology, you can allow for more efficient, more secure, and more robust markets and, and systems when when you allow for that spontaneous order that 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 was a lot of uh what brought me to it and also um of course ryan will rip into this but the fact that printing money as a solution uh to solving problems recognizing that that money is is not neutral in 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 a market that that there are effects in the capital structure when we do the, the different forms of how we create more liquidity and more money. So, so that's that's another important, I think, distinction. But th those are my two points. And with that, um, Ryan, do your thing, brother. Yeah. Well, let's. I guess let's go to the beginning and and kind of talk about what Austrian economics is and where it came from. And that's you start with that you start with Carl Menger. That's that's the obvious start. In in 1871. He wrote a book uh, called The Principles of Economics, and, and this was a time when when German economists and English economists were were kind of the at the top of their of the field in the field of econo economics. That was the center of the universe, and so when he came up with an al he had an alternative radical theory that he put forward in his book, and he he started off as a journalist and uh, covering financial markets, and it was through his experience of watching the financial markets that he and, and reading economics that he realized, well, this doesn't match what, with what I'm seeing in, in front of me. And the theories that were dominant in his time were, were all objective theories. They all had a, they all tried to establish a calculation that would, that would give you the, the, the right price, right? They would, it'd be an equilibrium price model essentially. And so you would come up with, they'd have, and there was different ways of doing it. There was a labor approach that was rooted in adding up how much labor time was in a good and that would be its price. And then there was another approach the English economists took, which was just purely cost theory. And they added up all the costs that were involved. So this would be the rent and labor and capital that would go into production of something. And then that would determine its price. And so essentially the idea here was that these were all objective theories that had started, that started with uh, production, how much resources were used up in production. And through that, that process, that was supposed to determine the value or the price of the final output. And so was, these were all objective concept, the objective theories of cost and, and price. When Menger wrote his book, he, he, he inverted all of this. He went to a subjective model where, where uh, consumers valued certain consumer goods directly for what they, for how they were useful to them and how they met their needs. And so the rank, the, the value they would put on any given good, would reflect the value they put on the need being satisfied. So goods that satisfied low needs would be 
would have a certain value to them. And then goods that satisfied higher needs would be more valuable. And on top of this, he added a, a scarcity layer, which looked, what's the context of this valuation? How many, and the context was all about how many units of the good are available. So things that were highly useful in meeting needs, but scarce, now you get this, this uh, situation where each individual unit has to have a, a you know, it's very, has to be rationed and used in a certain way because you don't want to waste it. It's valuable. And so this, we, it switched from a, a theory of valuing whole classes of goods to valuing individual units of goods. And that's the marginal analysis. And so his book, along with a couple others in the same year of 1871, kicked off what's called the marginal revolution in economics. And this was, like I described, a, a switch from viewing price and, and value in terms of uh, whole classes of goods, like the value of ice cream or the value of cheeseburgers or the value of hammers or the value of cars. And it morphed into saying, into looking at uh, the value of discrete things in, in a certain context. So the va it'd be the value of this supply of goods. And then we're talking about the marginal analysis the down to the individual unit and how it's, how it's to be priced because not all units are priced the same. <clears throat> so that's, that's one big part of Austrian economics. It's this subjective approach, which puts the, the consumer at front and foremost in determining the price of consumer goods. And then through that, entrepreneurs take that information and then they use that to inform their judgments about how much they're willing to pay for things like labor and capital and uh, and and finished goods, whatever other uh, whatever other resources they might need to produce a consumer good. So it's uh, so essentially what he did was he inverted the explanation. But prior to uh, the Austrian school, the uh, economists would value consumer goods based on the cost of production. And after Mark Manger and after the marginal revolution, economists valued consumer uh, valued producer goods or capital goods in light of the value of the consumer good. So it, it switched. One determined the, the path of causation was reversed, and that that's kind of the main, the big, big, big Austrian uh, contribution. Later on, uh, they'd started looking at things like capital structure, interest rates money and how all these things interrelate in a macro sense. And that, that out of that came a business cycle theory, which put uh, monetary changes at the forefront, uh, saw that injections of credit and lower and made the argument that lower than lowering interest rates and injecting money to do so causes uh, people to read signals in prices that are that are temporary, that are influenced by monetary factors. And the idea was that if that monetary stimulus would eventually peter out and wear off, the real effects would then re, kind of re, be felt again. Prices would go back to their natural course. And then whatever adjustments had been made in light of those temporary price uh, phenomenon, once those price prices changed, then all those adjustments would be then seen as uneconomic and wasteful. And then unwinding all of those investments and dealing with all that error was what the business cycle was. That that was the, the boom. That, that was the bust. The boom was the the run up too, uh, and then the bust was the realization that this was an error. And so that's, that's the other big, big thing that you associate with Austrian economics. It's, it's their business cycle. And I think that kind of, I mean, we can get deeper uh, to talk about Hayek and the role of knowledge to the third, that'd be the third and final thing. Cause this is getting long winded, but it ties it back to our podcast and the, our name, which is specific knowledge. And so Hayek's contribution here is to, is to make the argument 
in a famous paper, 1947, the argument was that knowledge uh, of preferences, like what, what people value, this is all private information. It's in their minds. And oftentimes they don't even know it. They can't explicitly, you, you, like it'd be difficult to come up with a, a, a list of the things that you're going to want and at certain prices you're willing to pay for say the next week or two. Like we don't even know what we might want to buy tomorrow, right? Or the next day. And then how urgent will that need be when it comes? It's hard to predict. So even in our own lives, it's difficult to predict exactly what our values might be in terms of what we want to buy, right? What we want, what exchanges we want to make. So now imagine scaling that question up beyond your own needs, but trying to answer that question for a population of people, right? So Hayek made the point that this is all private and in tacit uh, information that has that's that's embedded in specific locations, specific times, and specific places, and it's and it's not something that can be seen or observed from a distance. It needs to be it needs to be uh, discovered on the ground, as it were. Like you would be digging up something a fossil out of the ground. You can't do this from a remote place. You have to be there to find it. And so there was all these knowledge fossils embedded in the context that Hayek pointed to and said, this is what the economy turns on. It's, 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 these, it's these preferences in people's minds. And if we don't have a system that, that, uh, that recognizes the importance of that and, and doesn't distort it, right, where it's the price system and the exchange system and the market, if we, don't, if we don't recognize the value there, if we distort it and we try to supplant it and think we can do better, that essentially this is the pretense of knowledge and that we're really fooling ourselves because we will be stumbling around in the dark, essentially not knowing what to do we're, because the questions that we're trying to answer are dealing with issues that are so complicated and so remote from, from anybody's ability as a mere human, right? It's, it's, it's daunting. And, that, and so I'll wrap this all up with a quote from Hayek, the famous quote, and it's, uh, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And that, that kind of sums it up. It blows my mind that you guys can pull all this off the top of your head and just make it so easy to understand. Just continually blown away by that. Um, Thank you. Let's tie that all internal feedback structures and, and, and everything Hayek has, has built um, to blockchain. Well, what, why does this system inherently scream Friedrich Hayek and, and Austrian economics. Well, uh, uh, go ahead, Luke. Ryan, I was going to just say, you, you take it over, uh, just over just the, the decentralized nature of how ro more robust and, and secure it is to spread the work among many um, versus a top-down approach of trying to, that that's, uh, that's that's my 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 overall take is looking at how more more much more efficient the decentralized horizontal uh, approaches to to storing information to sharing information and how it it respects that natural flow uh, as far as the technical side of it the computer side of it on how it's actually easier on servers to not have a whole bunch of information stored on one large mainframe versus being able to um, efficiently uh, spread it out over different servers and, and, and smaller computers ba based upon a, a different protocol format. That's not my area of expertise, but the understanding the overall uh, of efficiency gain 
and the the benefits to that decentralized nature that that's my uh seeing the connection to the austrian economics but i would say i would almost i, I agree with what you're saying so i'm not going to push back but just for the sake of debate i'm going to invert it and say it's less efficient but it's but it's not but that's not a bad thing because you're paying a cost for uh, something else we're not maximizing efficiency here as much as we're getting a better system of incentives and that's kind of where we go back to the austrian how to tie it back to the austrian school is that the the incentives and the knowledge also the knowledge issues too as well because but essentially thinking of the argument for centralization has always been greater efficiency right so if you centralize uh, if you have one protocol that is that's dominant look at money there's one one kind of money right uh, you have you have one central bank that sets monetary policy. So there's not going to be a lot of time figuring out, you know, do I need to switch from one currency to the other? There's, there's no question. You have one unit of currency. You don't need to spend time thinking about uh, what, what is the, um, the, the chance of this being redeemed because it's not redeemable. <laughs> it's fiat, right? And the, now in terms of the, 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 the control mechanisms, right? When you have a bunch of different banks all making their own monetary policies, spread out over like say 50, say 50 or 100 that's going to be redoubling all these efforts right when you can centralize it in one one place you have one top down thing and they make the decision so there's fewer fewer minds behind the wheel right and there's a lot a lot more centralizing decision making but the negative there so that's that's the positive but then the negative is that you have all those knowledge questions well do, how does the the central planner of the money unit know what the optimum supply is, what the interest rate should be, and how and how does he know from any from one time to another? Because these things change, right? So yeah, you get efficiency of you get you get the ability to steer the entire ship of the economy by, with one rudder, instead of having a bunch of rudders that are all fighting against each other. But you lose the ability to discover that the, the high, you get you lose that Hayekian feedback where where an internal feedback process bottom up yields a set of to test essentially certain certain patterns of, of of whether it be money money or welfare or whatever fill in the blank whatever's whatever's been monopolized by the government you could look at money you could look at social security welfare we'll talk about that in a minute you could look at defense as a thing that's monopolized you could look at the law and the courts they have a monopoly on that there's not I mean, there's there are private arbiters you can go to but more often than not it's it's all under the public system and and on and on and on right the public education system one size fits all so there's all these systems that are all that are more or less controlled in an efficient way in the sense there's not a lot of people working against each other and there's not a lot of duplication of effort now there might be make work there could be people who are getting paid more than they should be but they're not necessarily fighting against each other and trying to work at the same at different goals, cross purposes, right? So there, so it's more efficient, but with efficiency, you get you don't you get hierarchy, right? You, now you have less uh, as an individual, you're just a cog in the machine, right? And the machine can be can be much bigger and have different goals and ends than yours, and it might not be responsive to the community, and it might not find the best outcome for the community. There might be political concerns that override community concerns and that often happens. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily more efficient. I do think it's superior and I think it's more efficient when you look at it from the view of what's going to give the most bang for your buck for, for the community. 
right? And you, but when you look about just like narrow efficiency, like reducing costs, reducing resource costs, like clearly Bitcoin, just as an example, is not, it, it's more efficient than the dollar in terms of how much energy it usage, uses. It's like half, I think, or less. But that didn't exist prior to Bitcoin. So this has been added, right? So you could say that it was prior to blockchain and crypto, there, the energy usage and dealing with monetary issues, issues was less, right? So all in all, I think the, the incentive gain and the knowledge gain from having decentralization is where the, is the point. But it's not necessarily a matter of being more efficient. But I, I agree. agree. I agree with you on that. I think uh, when I might talk about efficiency, I think you would agree with me on the Austrian economic calculation. If it's a, it's more efficient for control, but I, when I say efficiency, I, I mean efficient for the allocation of resources for humanity, for for production in general. I mean, if if you're getting the signals to build build houses, build houses, build houses, and it's making money for a lot of the builders and a lot of the people in the process, but then you get to the point where there's not enough materials to finish the house and finish the roof, and you got a bunch of unbuilt houses due to these boom and bust cycles that come through current uh, mismanagement where you have small groups of people trying to manipulate or control interest rates for whole populations. I think that it may be efficient for control. It may be efficient for, for certain people and what they're doing, but it, I don't find it, obviously we agree on, on a maybe ethical and equitable side. It's, it definitely doesn't meet muster uh, on, on a few areas, but, um, yeah, I, I totally, uh, that resonates what you said. I, I, I agree. I totally agree with Yeah. I thought you would. I just wanted to be argumentative, <laughs> but there was some good points in there too. Yeah, no, I thought so too. Um, and I think you, you started to tie this in, but, uh, I do want to jump to our next topic, which is about mutual aid and, and welfare states and, and, you know, social currency and, um, well, there's a lot there. Uh, I think the main topic, the main point here is is reciprocity, social reciprocity, I should say. I know, uh, Ryan, you brought up this book. Uh, so if you'd want to summarize it to us and then we can kind of launch into the discussion, uh, I think that'd be a great way to start. Yeah. Okay. I found this book by David T. Beto. Um, it's called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, From Fraternal Societies and Social Services, 1890 to 1967. And what it is, is a it's, a, it's a review of the benefit societies and the, and the fraternal societies that existed in this time. And, and it kind of goes through, because there's a lot, there's a lot of these groups. There's, there's some that you've all heard of, the Masons, the Knights of Columbus. You've, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the Elks Lodge and the Moose Lodge and the, these groups. There's also um, the Oddfellows. Uh, then, then there's the Foresters. There's the Sons of Italy. Free Club. Uh, there's just a lot, right? And a lot of these groups were were racial and gender um, exclusive, right? So there was a like, for example, the Rebecca's was a Odd Fellows spinoff for females. Uh, you had um, there was the t- knights, the knights and the daughters of the Tabors, which is an African American benefit group. And then there was also secret societies like the Masons and others that that had a more uh, ritualistic, esoteric layer as well. But all of these groups had some level of ritual, some level of social, um, you know, social interaction, social, they held, they held events and they held, they held community things. And then they had aid functions. That was, and that's what we're focusing on in this book is the aid function layer. So what was common, what kind of aid did they, did these groups give? Okay, well, they had 
sick benefits, death benefits, which were funeral benefit. They'd pay for your funeral. Uh, the, the sick benefit would be if you were if you were sick and you couldn't go to work. Uh, somebody would come by and either give you food or help your family out, watch your kids, you know, even pay your bills if you were out for an extended amount of time. Now, one of the things you might think of was, well, this could be abused, but this is where the reciprocity comes in. So these groups were voluntary, right? And the people, and they were based in, and they weren't, they had chapters all over, but they were usually based in certain regions. So when somebody needed to, needed to use the benefit, a member of the of their of their lodge that they would that they knew intimately would come over to their house and they would have a discussion with them face to face and they could see you know is this a legitimate need or is this person uh, trying to milk the system and be lazy so there was a check on on abuse that kept all this really very um, very efficient to go back to that word. And uh, so moving on, what the, what else did they do? They created orphanages. There was homes for the elderly. Uh, insurance programs, there was healthcare, there was even hospitals built. And in one of the no most important parts of this book that I found is in the kind of towards the back in a chapter called Our Temple of Health. And it talks about a Mississippi uh, charity drive that raised money to build the first African American hospital. And it was uh, organized by the Knights and Daughters of the Tabors. And they, they, this was a time when black people would have to go in the back. Like, so when they went to a hospital, they would go in the back. They would, they couldn't walk in the front. And there was a, and it goes without saying, they would get less, they wouldn't get the same care, right? So they built, there was a charity drive. Uh, they built this hospital and it, and it for a long time, I think in, even until the late sixties or seventies, if I remember correctly, it was an operation and serving and you know, serving the community and, and doing wonderful work. I remember, I remember a statistic, let me pull it up, that um, by, from the, between the 50s and the 60s, 135,000 outpatients were served in this hospital. And this was, these are people who otherwise would not have had medical care or adequate medical care, at all, if at all. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, not to get too long-winded, is that there was another group called the, the uh, Order of the Moose, Lo Loyal Order of the Moose, that's what it's called. And they had a school called Moose, Moose Heart that actually was an orphanage for kids who, who uh, you know, were homely, who had no, no family, no parents. And they built a huge orphanage. And unlike the standard orphanages of the day, this one was fantastic. They actually had good reviews. They did right by the kids. They, they uh, taught them well. And there's a statistic that I wanted to touch on just to wrap this up. Graduates of Mooseheart from 1919 to 1929, they earned 70% for the men and 62% for women more wage, uh, more of a way, they had a higher wage that by that amount than people who were not uh, graduates of Mooseheart. So the average male Mooseheart graduate earned $36. I guess this would be a day. And then the non-graduate was, was right around 25. So there was a, a, a significant wage differential for these orphaned kids graduating from Mooseheart, a, a private voluntary orphanage that was set up based on, on a mutual aid society. And so we have, we're, what we're looking at here is um, 
is voluntary decentralized forms of association providing outcomes that we would expect to see from tax funded hierarchies and not only doing it, but doing it well. Yeah. And I, I remember reading a part and I forget the numbers and it, uh, it's too, too hard to find right now, but it was something like with the hospitals, the mortality rate was like six out of every thousand compared to the standard, which is like nine out of every thousand. It's like just you know, that's not drastically, you know, that might be drastically different depending on how many outpatients you add. If you're in the hundreds of thousands, that makes a difference. And that, that show, that is really showing you something. And I think the thing there that the overarching theme again is, is reciprocity. Um, for those who don't know, um, I think it's a psychology term, the norm of reciprocity. And it essentially means that if you see someone well, not necessarily, but the idea that reciprocity states that a person is going to help someone else or is expected to help someone else. Uh, and then there's also this expectation of doing it in return, of help in return. And um, this a is gift actually- gift economy. Yes, like the best yes. Way I think of it. A gift economy. is, a f- and, and that's um, one of my favorite books, Debt by David Roth Graber. He talks a lot about a gift economy. Um, another funny allegory, I think, is in psychology class, uh, what was this? ninth or 10th grade, maybe my friend, Jesse and I, uh, to test social reciprocity went into a grocery store, um, with a shoe untied. And we recorded this. I'll try and find the video and link it if, if I can find it. And we would walk up to people in the grocery store and say, Hey, can you tie my shoe? And everyone said, no, like what? But then we stacked two huge things of water, like, you know, 24 cases and walked up to some people and some people before we even asked, jumped down to tie our shoe. It's funny. It's this expectation that I'm sure if, if they were in need that we would help them as well. Uh, and it's just like, it's every person. It's such an interesting uh, experiment. And it's part of being uh, in society is that yeah. you, you learn, you come to learn that you're, that you're responsible for other people to a degree and they're responsible for you to, to a degree, you know, and that's, and that I always think of it in beneficial terms, but reciprocity has an inverse too it's when you shame and ostracize people who because they go against the norms right and i think both of those have a role in forming and holding society together the reciprocity and the ostracism it's like two sides of the same coin absolutely there's uh there's a game theory book and um, i'm forgetting the the name of it right now but there's a, a quote in it uh talking about how people will actually if you go against the norm uh they will even if it is uh, disadvantageous for them, they will get go out of their way to hurt or ostracize you. I believe it. Well, that that uh, is a nice segue to, well, this, this, this story about the decentralized mutual aid groups is a good segue to some of the most interesting topics in blockchain, I think. And, and I think where NFTs have the potential to shine. And I know uh, Lucas has a project uh, that he likes to talk about uh, Apocalypse art that is a perfect example of the kind of uh, potential that blockchain and NFTs have for recreating the sort of uh, reciprocity that we're talking about in, in this book. Thanks, brother. Yeah, there is a project I, I do like to talk about, and and it does it does touch on this subject a bit. It's apocalypseartclub.com is the name of his website, and the artist is Jeff. Barnum and he's been making digital art 
for uh, for 30 plus years and just recently learned about blockchain technology and 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 how his artwork can be turned into these non-fungible tokens these nfts which people can go see all of his nfts on on open as well as as any other nft on the ethereum uh, blockchain um but yeah his um his artwork is spiritually inspired and this is perfect for for what you all were talking about just a minute ago because it just had me thinking about you know we're talking about uh, it's in human nature to be empathetic and see other people when you see someone with their shoe untied you help them because you see yourself with your shoe untied it's more it's more about we have the ability to look outside of ourselves and see others as 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 we would ourselves and that's there there's something beautiful and, and special about that his artwork is spiritually inspired I, I i really love it he's working to create a whole ecosystem for those people who hold his artwork to be able to engage with each other but um getting back to the, to the mutual aid and what you were talking about it's also a way to every time a, one of his pieces of art are sold um there is uh, a donation, a percentage of that art goes to support a charity, goes to support um, a, a greater cause. And this is just the beginning, I know, of NFTs and, and blockchain rolling out solutions for this. Um, but, you know, go, when I think about what you guys were just talking about, you know, I look at even in a world right now where the state has created a welfare system, social security, unemployment, all, there are still people giving the little bit that they have on the side of the street to someone who has a cardboard sign or at the grocery store, can I have some change? So it's in our, our nature to give. And, and that story you, you were talking about earlier, Ryan, from the, the book is, is perfect and beautiful. I mean, we do. There's more. There's an efficiency gain, and and there's less corruption. There's less moral hazard when you have someone going to your door, and and the person that's in need is being is receiving that need from someone in the community that knows you, that can actually go to your home. That makes a difference. It's not fill out a form and send it to this bureaucratic office uh, with the new administration, you know, uh, thousands of miles away. And, you know, that's where you start finding uh, corruption. That's where you uh, start seeing moral hazard. And it's almost we're, we're returning to a way where blockchain and and uh, blockchain technology is, is returning to a way where we can cutting out the middleman is actually also ending corruption and moral hazard. And I feel like I missed a pink elephant earlier when we, when you asked Devin, um, the connection between Austrian economics and blockchain, it's like, well, okay, how about, uh, um, money, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general, Ryan, I think you would agree. What does the effect of removing uh, the human fallible nature, choosing an interest rate, controlling the supply of money, you know, forget all the Austrian economic details of the effects that has in the economy. Just, just what, what's the overall benefit we can see from taking the human error element out of, of that and making it something that's transparent, standard, that, that is, is, is no longer um, at the whim of one group to the next. So, all right. I think I, I went off a, a little yeah, bit there, but <laughs> something self-executing and automatic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Where the code is law and not the arbitrary whims of a, mm -hmm. of a technocrat. Exactly. And, and I think that's a 
perfect segue into uh, our, our third topic, third and final topic, which is uh, crypto and, and blockchain tech versus regulation. Um, where is this going? We, we see it happening right now. Um, I think I think the most poignant uh, thing to discuss would be Uniswap's tweet recently where, um, and here I'm going to pull it up so I can read it verbatim, is that, quote, as of today, we have started restricting access to a small number of tokens on uniswap.org. These changes pertain to the interface of the website, but the protocol remains entirely anonymous, immutable, and permissionless, end quote. And so people were um, pretty upset that, you know, Uniswap is uh, the shining beacon of decentralization. It is a fully decentralized exchange where you can exchange any token at any time. It's never down. No one can come on and say, nope, you can't change that or trade that anymore. But now what they've done is they've restricted some tokens um, from being listed on the the, the front end of, of their website. So they still exist. The pools are still there. And if you know how to you know code or, or operate with Etherscan, uh, you know the blockchain actually itself, you would still be able to trade those um, and hold those tokens. But it, it became less easy, and that's that's a point of centralization. Some are saying, and, and we have to think why why did this happen? Um, and right after this happened, I actually happened to be in a room with a few crypto lawyers on Clubhouse, uh, which is a um, audio only discussion room app really really cool app i think we've all <laughs> i know we've been been on that app quite a bit uh, especially uh lucas you and me um but we were, we were having a discussion and i asked i said what do you guys think about this and they're like well it's it's pretty clear what it is and that is uh something called the fatf which is the financial action task force um who has had crypto in its eyes for uh, a while now but i think if the rumors are true this October uh, there will be some formal uh, guidelines or outlines of, of how they're going to approach these regulations. Um, and you can go to their website right now. We'll, we'll link one of the uh, websites we're discussing here right now uh, in the show notes, but it's, it's already mentioning cryptocurrency and, and virtual assets and exchanges and how these uh, VASPs, which are uh, virtual asset service providers um, that these v- they're required to do KYC, which is know your customer, so you have to know who who is transacting, uh, and AML, which is anti money laundering. And there's also this rule that goes with it called the travel rule, where you have to know where the money's coming from, uh, and you know is it being laundered. Uh, so this is a huge hit to decentralization, and I want to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Well, I noticed that they. They're targeting synthetic synthetics off the bat, and they're targeting op, uh, options like you know contracts. What was the wording? Uh, option tokens, yes. So it looks like to me, in the inverse sense as well. So all the the, the synthetics are the one of the most exciting parts of of the DeFi world in my mind because of their ability. They're giving people the ability to to make take positions on these other assets that are in the financial ecosystem they otherwise wouldn't have access to without you know buying bidding up their price or lowering their price so no surprise they're targeting those it's definitely something we need to we were worried about and we were aware of that was coming it was always just a matter of time how long is this wild west going to last you know 
there's thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars circulating in these markets, billions outside the, the grip and the reach and the vision of, of the uh, planners. And they're not used to that. And for that, and you know, just, just knowing their, them and how they operate, that's not going to last. But it's also true that, that the people who created these tools aren't really interested in being told what to do all that much. And just as dedicated as they are, we're pretty dedicated as well. So I feel like this is just a, uh, maybe the opening salvo in what, what's going to be a Cold War, you know, and to come. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, crypto is an ideology for a lot of people. Uh, the, I mean, decentralization is, is truly the ideology, the ethos. And, and attacking that is, uh, yeah. I mean, it, personally, and from, from what I've studied, um, I believe that this has been an ongoing war for, for maybe the past hundred years, just in different uh, theaters, uh, with theaters of war, for sure, uh, Vietnam versus the United States. One is a far more decentralized uh, fighting force than the centralized United States. Um, and even, you know, the German Blitzkrieg is a decentralized uh, approach to warfare. And, and you have, uh, I mean, what's going on in Hong Kong where, where there are no, you know, 2014, uh, uh, I believe it was, with the Umbrella Revolution, there were leaders. Uh, those leaders all got taken to jail. Uh, so they restructured in a fully decentralized way, the people of Hong Kong, and they created a decentralized uh, protest force that the police could not compete with. Um, I mean, I was there and I asked some of the, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, where are they going to one of the media people who are on the ground? They're like, well, we have no idea. We just follow. Same with the police. It's like cat and mouse. It's like, that is such an efficient way to protest. So you have this, this continuous battle and you see the advantages of, of centralization. You see the advantages of, uh, I think, decentralization uh, come to light even more. And uh, this is, um, yeah, this is, this is a big deal. This is, uh, I think you're right. It's, it's kind of just getting big now. Uh, in terms of like a cold war, but I think it's been going on for quite a long time now. Uh, this is just much more entirely global. It's not. It's not focused to a to a region. Well, when you see the the, the uh, central planners bringing up 19th century banking to uh, excuse funny? regulation of of <laughs> one thing or another, you know they're getting they're 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 reaching. They're, they're, oh, yeah. they're looking in their bag of tricks and what can we find? They're pulling up criticisms of a free banking something that hasn't existed in over 150 yeah. years. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's coming, you know, and they're, they're I, loading I their guns. I, I definitely see it cold. I see it as a war of knowledge, a battle of ideas, really, because what is blockchain? It's technology. Technology is, is, is knowledge. It's how, in fact, people who even describe how Bitcoin works are saying, well, it's actually old technology that we just put together in a new way, which is the story of, of, te of technological growth anyway, really. Um, so, um, the idea is that for many people who don't understand blockchain, like I agree, Devin, for, for many people who do, and, and what, what Bitcoin was born from, even according to the paper of Satoshi Nokomoto and those, it was born from the bailout. It was born from a corrupt monetary system. However, that romantic story may be, the reality is, is that many people who understand Bitcoin, the technology blockchain, recognize that it itself can be the most Orwellian tool the world has ever seen. I mean, you're talking about a public money laundering. That's a joke. I mean, banks have been laundering trillions and billions. Wells Fargo now can no longer 
offer consumer credit anymore. I mean, you know, the idea, the, the, the crypto market's so small. It's a pin. It's a. It's the top, the top of an iceberg. Not even the tip of an iceberg compared to the current traditional financial system that that currently finances terrorism, finances prison states, finances all these ridiculous and horrible things. So the the, the notion that uh, people need to be regulated or AML or KYC is going to protect the world from the evils of blockchain is really just more a power play at, at preventing you because you're seeing a huge transfer of wealth, a huge generational transfer of wealth into this new um, arena where many of the people are very uh, ethical, equitable, and, and li liberating minded. So um, you know, I, what I see is that sure, a long time ago, the tech was born from an appreciation of, of uh, having a not corrupt monetary system. However, it's become sensationalized, even with Robinhood and Coinbase and look at CNBC and Fox News tickers. Check out Grayscale, everybody. You can invest and buy a, a, a DeFi fund here. You know, it, it's fun to talk about the, the overall growth and acceptance, but for many people, it's just become a new hot Tesla stock. They don't even care to know the differences between what is Chainlink and, and what is uh uh, the new bat token and what's their utility or what's their purpose. It's, it's more um, just about, Ooh, is the price up or down? How's my portfolio doing? And for many people in that mindset, uh, they, they, they don't see, they're, they're saying, well, everything's regulated. If you can make money, it needs to be regulated. And I need to look to the people who tell me what to do, the regulators, and I need to wait for the, the message to come down. So, so for many people, uh, that's how they see the world. Blockchain technology, mumbo jumbo, doesn't mean anything to them. Bitcoin, Schmitcoin, um, it needs to be taxed, schmaxed, regulated. And, and for others, in the way I see it, the way I see it, and I feel that are the biggest defense is that this is like Prometheus. This is like someone learning fire for the first time. And it's so irrational. We talk about the role of knowledge in Austrian economics and, and the reality of, of how we learn. It's, it's preposterous to have bureaucrats, men and women, people like you know us, our, our uncles, our family members, our friends, all of a sudden be put in charge with telling me and everyone else how and when to use a brand new technology that they themselves had no, if little to no part in its growth, in, in its birth. So I can't tell you how much money I lost over, over the, over the last several years in not having an FDIC and not having some party I can go to to say, Hey, I lost my keys. Hey, I sent it to the wrong address. Hey, there was a bug here. There, 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 there was no system there to come back and, and benefit me. I knew that when I took a risk, I knew when I was joining one crypto community to the next, that I'm a part of something that may be around in two years. It may not be around, but but these are the building blocks of a future decentralized, liberated market. So I, I, I think, you know, for those of us who see this as an experiment in knowledge and in communication, then who are you to tell me how to use the alphabet and, and how how to communicate with others? But uh, I, that's why I say it's a war of it's going to be a war of knowledge and ideas, because for many people, if they don't understand the potential of this technology 
and and they don't understand the problems the the, the moral hazard and the corruption with having a monetary system uh, that is controlled by a few people and isn't set to code like you were saying earlier Ryan. Um, if they don't understand the problems and they don't understand the potential of the tech, then, then all they will see it is as another commodity, another instrument that they can invest in, in the framework that they understand. So for me, I think it's, again, it's understanding the arguments about teaching people what this is, what this technology is and, and why it's important that we support uh, and Ryan, you can take off on this, but what's the, what's the importance of, of allowing a new technology, allowing an emerging market for, for competition and for people to make mistakes? And, and, and you know, why is it uh, not benefit us to, to have people limit our ability to make mistakes and make choices when, when something is first being understood? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the main loss when we start, start going down this path of ensuring that that the sort of openness that we're accustomed to is 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 no when that goes away i think the main the main loss is all the experiment they all the experimental knowledge that we could have gained what you know what protocols what things could have been invented had there been freedom for that we you, you talked about technology and uh, how a technological innovation is often a function of just uh combining old old ideas in a novel way right? Things that are already on the shelf, but people think of, oh, well, let's just do this with, with it and we'll reformat it or retrofit it or whatever. And now it's this new thing. Well, that, pre that presumes that there's the scope and the, and the freedom in the, to actually do that. But if, you, but if you're not able to, to interact with those other things and you're not able to recombine them and you're not able to experiment, then whatever innovation you might've come up with will be lost. And I think if you look at you know, like delistings on Uniswap, you know, it's, it's happening on the front end. So it's, it's not the end of the world. It's just going to limit people who aren't, who aren't savvy and who, who, and who can become, people can become savvy. So it's not a big deal, but if it was effective, if they were really truly able to censor and, and reduce the, and, and censor the DeFi world, right. And, and end things that like synthetics, right. If they just ended that, that could be that that sh that's a, that's cease that's shutting down innovation and that that's going to make us uh, you know poor in the long run for not having those those new ideas. Yeah, don't don't bring an umbrella to a brainstorm. It's it's not not how things change. And and of course maybe they don't want things to change. Uh, and that's you know part of the reason. And I was to say something real quick. The biggest irony of all, I think we all all agree, was not Bitcoin the big the big spiel was banking the unbanked. Was it not about banking the unbanked? Mm -hmm. So how hilarious, how, how ridiculous, how funny is it now that, that the mainstream idea is that in order to participate in crypto, you have to pass AML KYC muster. It's like, wait a minute, time out, time out. Literally this whole market, this whole market was born from allowing people who don't have the IDs and bank accounts and social security numbers that you think are required to allow them to participate in a digital economy with just a cell phone and an email address if that and, and so now to state that oh no um in order to play in these digital asset games you must uh meet our our previous traditional market standards it's 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 it's, it's ridiculous it's absolutely worthy of ridicule well it, it just goes back to the idea that they feel that any dollar earned inside these borders by anybody for any reason is something they have a claim on and i think they're and they will they will uh, defend that claim even to absurdity. <laughs> That's kind of the point. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I do think one tool that comes with this, you guys talk about combining old technologies in, into new, in new ways, and that, right? Um, I don't know if you definitely necessarily call this a technology, but mobility has been a thing that has not been, I don't think, experimented with in a long time. And, you know, we all have our houses and our, you know, we, well, now after, you know, post, post-pandemic world, we don't go into office buildings anymore. It is a little more mobile, uh, which is, you know, leading to a more decentralized world in, in well, certainly geographically, but uh, in other ways. But there's a, a quote, and I put this in my book about decentralized organizations. It's about it's by um, Stephanie Papa, uh, Papas, I believe, and it goes, "quote In hunter-gatherer societies, if an individual tries to behave in a despotic way, then the rest of the community simply gets up in the middle of the night and walks away. But with agriculture, that was much different and much less feasible." And so, you know, we all, uh, you know, agriculture is the birth of most hierarchical states and, and that's established, I think. Now I have the chance uh, to get up and go with my ledger, my, my device where I hold all my private keys to my, um, my finances and move to a different country that's more suited to the, you know, regulations that maybe they don't regulate crypto. Maybe they're crypto friendly, like Wyoming or El Salvador. You know, there are places now where I can make the choice to literally move my body and uh, be able to continue fighting the battle, right? So it's very interesting uh, power that we've been given with this technology. Uh, and I know we don't have the answers. Certainly, I wish we did. Uh, and I wish we knew the outcome. And I, I, I hope it's favorable in, in, in the ethos and in the direction that we've chosen to live our lives, uh, partially or fully unbanked but it'll, it'll certainly be interesting. I love the mobility and money um, connection that you put there, brother, because it, it, it actually goes back to the, the wildcat banking that Ryan and I were talking about the other day and, and how the, the changes in, in money regulations have actually allowed for a more mobile and freer people. It used to be uh, the banks didn't have charters and you were limited to going and pulling out your capital and getting a loan and uh, to that one area of the town or the state. And, and now being able to have banks that can transfer money from one state to another, one country to another, has allowed human development community to thrive and allow us to travel and, and to build bridges together. I, I mean, it's absolutely, uh, there's a connection and it's beautiful. And I would say that's another reason to allow cryptocurrency or the digital economy to flourish without the limitations and the regulations of the traditional financial markets. And, and the pink elephant in the room, again, is that uh, those intermediaries aren't even needed. Like literally all those institutions for preventing counterfeit and fraud and uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, that's the beauty of Bitcoin and blockchain is that there's a, there's a ledger system that is more robust and secure and it actually makes a lot of these pitfalls, these issues, it makes them uh, no longer, uh, well, a thing of the past, they're no longer an issue, so. Yeah, it's, it's that creative destruction concept is the, you know, this new technology replaces the need for all of these other, uh, all this effort, which, which is now can be freed to, up to, use, to be used in other ways. Well, guys, I, I think this was a, a great examination of you know, going from reciprocity to regulation and, and hopefully back into reciprocity. It's been phenomenal talking with you guys. You guys always blow my mind and uh, just the things you guys know and, and what you've read. 
uh, continue to impress me. So thank you guys for jumping on today. Always have a fun with you, Devin. Thanks. Ditto. Thank you, brother. All right. See you guys. Adios.